father of evil, the great divider, is Satan. And we need more unity, less division in the church today. So today, Bishop Frank Caggiano is going to talk about unity, unity in the church, unity among Catholics, unity among the bishops. We'll talk about uh, Eucharistic coherence, we'll talk about the traditional Latin Mass, talk about the uh, Synod coming up in Germany, and the cult of personality among um, bishops and popes. That's all ahead on Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. So stick around, listen to this very important, very important episode. If you're on the radio, keep it here at 1350 AM. If you're listening on the mobile app, turn up the volume on your phone. (laughs) You can get the app on the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or at veritascatholic.com. And there you can listen live to our broadcasts or you can uh, grab podcasts of any of our original shows. Veritas Catholic Network is bringing the truth to Connecticut and New York. So when you're tired of listening to noise, put on Veritas and be fed. All right, this is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I am Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, good morning to you, my friend. Good morning. Hey, Excellency. Um, We have an interesting topic to talk about today. Yeah. It's it's different from what we normally do. Yes, but it's important. It's important, and it's been weighing on my heart for a very long time. And I think this is the time to do it. Um to at least raise it as something to, for us, you, me, our listeners, and the larger church to reflect on. Because the stakes are enormous. And um, history teaches us when we have not done this sort of reflection, that there were grave consequences for the life of the church. And, and therefore, uh, it, it, this is gonna be a bit more of a theological reflection and raising questions um, for people to think about. Okay. And the topic that I want to talk about is the unity of the church. Yeah. You know, every Sunday when we come to Mass, we say, uh, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And it's interesting that the order of the words starts with one, the unity, not even with the holiness of the church. It's the unity of the church. And the unity of the church is always a fragile reality because it involves, it necessitates a deep personal humility on the part of every believer to certainly engage in the, in the matters of what we believe, but also to submit to the truth which is not of our making. So if you were to think of unity in the secular world, Unity is achieved by compromise. Unity is achieved by, you know, dialogue to achieve something that makes us, you know, as Congress would say, everybody relatively unhappy, and therefore we could all stand on this middle patch that we call unity. That's how politics works, business works, the secular world works. But that's not how we work, okay? Unity flows from from the very Trinitarian life of God. The three divine persons live in perfect unity because they live perfect love. They are love. So therefore, 
Why is this such an important issue in my mind? It is because I am beginning to see. I've always been worried. Now I am becoming alarmed at how there are forces in the church, perhaps with the best of intentions, that are pursuing the truth as the people who, with the best of intentions, understand the truth to be in a way that is not necessarily allowing the truth to be lived in love or in unity. And therefore, just as happened in the patristic era, in the Reformation era, in other times in the church's life, when we do not pay attention to the demand of unity, which is the demand of love, then we start getting into trouble and the church can begin to fracture. And once a fracture occurs, it is very hard to heal, as you can see now in the state of Christianity, because one of the great scandals of Christianity is that it is so divided. And the secular world says, you people can't even get your act together, and you're trying to tell us to get our act together. And that fracturing continues in the Protestant world, because of the rise of evangelical Christianity. So you could be a congregation of one. You could be a church of one church, right? One storefront, you're it, right? We cannot go down that route. And I'm deathly afraid that we are slowly evolving into something which could very well fracture the church again. And I believe as one of my highest priorities as a bishop of the church to teach the truth in love. Now, that phrase should be very familiar because it comes from Ephesians 4. St. Paul teaches this to the people of Ephesus. And allow me, at the risk of, you know, being a little bit um, boring, um, in the sense of it's hard for a person to listen to this without the text in front of them, but it's extraordinarily important that the inspired Word of God lead us forward in this conversation we have today. Okay, so St. Paul says to a divided Ephesus, Ephesus which had false prophets, misbehavior, okay, which, which infected the early church, even in its time of tremendous growth. St. Paul says, and his gifts, that is the Lord's, were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, ministry is done within the larger context of communion and unity, right? In service of the truth of the faith. Then he goes on to say, and this is very apropos to our world, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the cunning of men, by their craftiness in deceitful wiles. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knitted together by every joint 
with which it is supplied, when every part is working properly, makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. Okay? To live the truth in love is the essence of the unity of the church. Now, there are many things at work which are mitigating our ability to do that. Our taping, this will be aired after the bishop's meeting, okay, virtually. In fact, you and I are taping this on the very day when the meeting starts later on today. So I am praying that among the bishops, that they will strive to live the truth in love when it comes to the Eucharist and the question of worthiness of who can come to Holy Communion and receive when it comes to liturgical disciplines in the church and the need for a Eucharistic revival so that Catholics can come to understand in mind and heart and in will the great mystery that unites us together which is the Eucharist. And notice, the Eucharist is the truth because Christ is really substantially present there and calls us to communion and union in love. So the pinnacle of who we are is the Eucharist for that reason. And it has now become a, a, um, a, a place where, unfortunately, there has been, I think, a level of misunderstanding a level of mischaracterization, a level of, of legitimate disagreement in the practical application of what we believe, and quite frankly, a need for conversion on the part of some. It's simple as that. Right. So let's talk about Eucharistic coherence and the controversy that surrounds that. I'm going to say something that may elicit a reaction, and I don't mean this in any way other than my honest assessment of what we need now in this moment in the life of the church. And I'm speaking about how the USCCB works. There are many people who will criticize how the chancery works under my leadership, so I'm offering this with all humility. But the USCCB the way it has been, has evolved, is an organization that when it meets, when we meet, is essentially designed for the maintenance of ecclesial life. It is not necessarily geared well for what I'm going to call mission in the world, or to put it another way, to be able to tackle questions that arise in the life of the church that demand comprehensive, speedy resolution. As people know, the bishops meet twice a year, right, in plenary session, November and June. And items go through the process of committee creation, consultation with the bishops, then goes back to editing, then goes back to the bishops, right, for approval. And ordinarily, if the topics we are talking about are not the topics of tremendous controversy, that process works well, okay? However, when you have an issue such as whether or not the president 
or political leaders or prominent cultural figures who are quote-unquote Catholic present themselves for Holy Communion? And what is the response that has to be made with that? A response that should be truly coherent, meaning that it needs to be coherent with what we believe, but also it should be a practice that is abided by by every bishop, right? Our structure is too cumbersome to allow that to happen. You know, I've received some mail questioning why I signed the letter with the 67 other bishops that questions the process, okay? And to be very clear, my dear friends, I have no disagreement in the substance of what the church teaches. The Eucharist is the great mystery of our communion with the Lord, who is our Savior and Redeemer. And everyone who comes forward, everyone who comes forward, must do all in his or her power to receive that Eucharist worthily. Certainly without mortal sin, for if you are guilty of mortal sin, you cannot come forward for communion. And people will say, well, Bishop, then you are the arbiter and the judge. You are the custodian of the Eucharist. That is true. But there are many sins, mortal sins, hidden deep in people's hearts that I have no knowledge of. And therefore, St. Paul says in Corinthians that those who receive unworthily bring judgment upon their own heads. The fathers of the church speak very clearly. He or she who receives the bread of life unworthily receives the bread of death. So the ultimate judgment for whoever receives unworthily, whether they are princes, presidents, kings, or you or I, is the Eucharist itself being received in a vessel that should not receive it. And that's self-inflicted punishment. That's not even the Lord's doing, it's your own doing. Now, there is the added complication, of course, of scandal. For prominent people receiving Holy Communion will then cause confusion among the faithful. It will cause others to question whether or not we continue to believe what we believe, and there is an added element there as well. Right? So, I have no difficulty because that is Orthodox faith, and, you know, as a, a bishop friend of mine says, I am a Catholic and I plan to die a Catholic. <laughs> the bottom line is, this is what we believe and this is what I believe. The question is, in this case, is twofold in my mind. There are bishops who, for perhaps the best of intentions, seem to be giving a public persona that gives the sense that they are in disagreement and that, I believe, is harming the unity of the church. That can have long-term, serious consequences. My other objection, and therefore that has to be addressed. Secondly, to have the Committee on Doctrine draft this document ordinarily would be the normal course. And they would still do it. But I do not think, given the gravity of the issue involved, that the, the bishops should receive an already drafted document for edits without the entire body of bishops gathering for consultation. I understand we're all busy. I, I, I am busy too. 
But there are some issues in the life of the church that rise to the point where the bishops need to come together without the media, without social media, without the liberal and conservative pundits, kick them all out. Because we have been given the apostolic office. We are the ones who are gonna be judged how we govern the church in this moment of great crisis. And lock ourselves in a room and have some individuals who can frame the conversation. And just like in the early church, bring bishops together and restore the unity that we must have by an honest, face-to-face, -face, personal discussion, debate, whatever it is. Because let me say to you, my friends, I have no doubt there's not a single bishop in this country who believes abortion's a good thing. There's not a single bishop in this country who does not believe that they are it's an intrinsic evil. And everyone involved in abortion is committing mortal sin. I don't know of a single bishop who believes other than that. But there may be disagreement on the application of the faith in concrete pastoral circumstances. So we have to debate that and we have to come to a consensus. And our process just does not allow that. Even an hour or two, this may require two full days. But the ancient church did it. The patristic church did it. You know, when the Council of Jerusalem was held and debated whether or not the Gentiles would be admitted into the life of the church, they didn't create a committee to discuss it. <laughs> right? The apostles met with Paul and some of the disciples, and they debated it out. Same too with the Council of Trent. There were working groups that ultimately the bishops met. So I think in this case, it is absolutely important that we establish, re-establish unity. That is, we, re we teach the truth in love, in union, in communion, together with one voice. So our process, my, my, my concern is that our process is too administrative, it's too drawn out, it's too bureaucratic. And over an electronic platform, you cannot have the debate that if I saw you face to face, eyeball to eyeball, that's the sort of debate, because it's that important for the life of the church. So in my mind, this whole question of the Eucharist is so important, it's so central, that we have to go beyond our rules, and we have to gather together. And I would advocate sometime this summer to really, in a closed session, confidential way, be able to Reaffirm the truth, because we, that is our mandate before the Lord. Reaffirm pastoral practice that all the bishops understand and agree to. And even if in the end we cannot achieve that goal, we will have tried our best to achieve that goal. And that is a mandate, in my mind, of leadership right now in the life of the church. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, Thank you. I, thank you very much for saying that because what you just said was very strong, very clear, and uh, results-oriented, not just let's put, put out a document and, and, and that's it. So, yeah. yeah. So you thank know what you. it is, Steve? You know what it is, Steve, too? Because it, it is important because there's another issue that most people may not know 
But the bishops are also proposing a three-year national Eucharistic revival based on the fact that at least, depending on what poll you read, half the Catholics in the country do not fully understand what the Church believes the Eucharist to be. Right. That is a fundamental challenge. It is, if no other reason, it is an injustice to the Catholics who have never been given the opportunity to learn the rich mystery of the Eucharist. We are not giving them the opportunity to receive the fullness of the grace there because no one ever helped them. That's an abject failure on every level of the church's life. And not just the bishops. It's the bishops, it is parish leadership, it is families, it's mothers and fathers. We all have to look in the mirror and say, how did this happen and how do we correct it? So the bishops are working on this huge, multi-year renewal, starting in dioceses and parishes and working their way up, please God, to a national Eucharistic Congress in 2024 to focus all our eyes on the Eucharist. And therefore, again, that sort of revival demands the support of all the bishops, which I think it will gather. And this question of Eucharistic coherence, or to put it another way, how do we judge? To whom do we allow admittance to the Eucharist? Has to be also seen not as a separate track, but as an essential part of this larger project. And once again, it demands the bishops to come together to pray over this and make this their priority in the life of the church. So I am deeply concerned. I am deeply concerned about what we do in the next few years can do irreparable harm to the unity of the church. And it's not a false choice. It's not a question of the truth or unity. St. Paul says it, living the truth in love. It's a false choice to think. I can affirm the truth and let the consequences come what may, even if the church breaks apart. Yes. For in my mind, that is not doing the work of Jesus Christ. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. So then, um, while we're talking about this kind of stuff, Excellency, can I also ask you then about the... Um, some some folks who love the traditional Latin Mass are a little mm -hmm. worried that this is mm -hmm. not going to be mm -hmm. allowed. Mm -hmm. right. Can you talk about... Yeah. Yeah, because, uh, again, there are rumors. But you see, there's a lot... It's interesting. Um, there was a rumor in some news outlets that the Pope was going to have Mass with President Biden and he was going to give him possibly Holy Communion and and yet... Nothing happened. There was no meeting. The meeting was never scheduled. It didn't exist. So let me ask you a question. Where'd they come up with that idea? An unnamed source. So you report the news on an unnamed source? And what type of integrity is that? And how did that help the unity of the church? That just inflamed this conversation even more. That's irresponsible. It's irre and, and, and multiple medias did it. Even the secular media did it. Right? Yeah. Again, so I say to myself, to go back to the, to the liturgical question, the liturgical question is also a question of the unity of the church. 
right? It's interesting, okay? And perhaps we, after our break, we could resume this topic, right? But it's interesting. I remember when I was a little boy, my mother said to me, everywhere I went for church, for mass, it was the same mass. Because, of course, it was in Latin. So you could go to Thailand, Kenya, the United States, or Italy. It was all in Latin. So, again, there was a communion, a union, a unity. Right? So, the Vatican Council asks for um, the liturgy to be made more accessible to the participation of the faithful. Full active participation. Therefore, the decision was made in the implementation to introduce the vernacular um, in a widespread way. So the form of the Mass remained the same, but the languages were different. So there was a natural impediment if I went to, I don't know, to Germany. If I went to Mass, um, I, I don't speak German. I, I, have a, I have an idea of what's going on, but I could not participate the same way that in my native language. But the truth is, for the vast majority of Catholics, uh, they did not speak Latin very well. So they understood the parts of the Mass, which we do now, because in many of our parishes, we sing the Agnus Dei in Latin, the Sanctus in Latin. I mean, after a while, you memorize it, you know what you're saying. But for the prayers of the Mass, for example, it would have been more difficult because they kept changing right, every Sunday. So it's ironic, we're kind of in the same place, only it's the vernacular, not the use of Latin, if you're not fluent in Latin, which most non-clerics would not have been. All right. The interesting thing is, the Tridentine Mass was never abrogated by the Second Vatican Council or the Pope. Right. It was never said that the Mass could not be celebrated. And, and a Pope could never say that because it was celebrated for 400 years. It was celebrated with great dignity and beauty after Trent, and similar to what happens to our, the, what I call the new order of the Mass, um, priests celebrated it, not always with the most reverence or attention. And we've spoken about that before, the 14-minute Sunday Mass. Yes. Right? So, so because the Mass was not abrogated, again, in an exercise of truth and unity, unity is not uniformity, necessarily. So you don't have to do the exact same thing to be in communion with one another. Communion being the truth in love. So it was St. John Paul II who first allowed the use of the what we call now the extraordinary form or the old rite or whatever you want to do, or the traditional rite, however you want to call it. And he gave it to the bishops to re regulate. And he insisted that there would need to be a need for a community, a stable community, within a parish or a shrine or wherever it may be. So it was in response to the need of the God's people to say, we, we wish to pray this way because our spiritual life can grow in, in, in a deeper way because we pray this way, which is legitimate. Mm -hmm. In my mind, that's quite legitimate. 
and therefore he allowed it. And then Pope Benedict, in his motu proprio, um, loosened it further. So it's no longer at the restriction of the bishop, or the control of the or supervision of the bishop, and it's left to the priest to discern um, if the pastoral circumstances are correct. And that is where it has begun to lead into issues. Because if the priest is in service of his people, that is, salus animarum suprema lex, the supreme law is the salvation of souls, then the choice of form, the choice of the mass to be celebrated has to be dictated not by the priest's personal preference but by the pastoral need of his people. That has not always happened. That has gotten back to Francis, I think, in all the ad limited visits, certainly with the bishops of the United States. And therefore, I think he's going to, if he's going to act at all, he will act on trying to correct that. Okay. Now, how we will do it, and I, I, I really do not know. But again, to my way of thinking, if you base it on Ephesians 4, right, to live the truth in love, it is true that the extraordinary form is a valid, noble, and beautiful way to pray. It is true that the Novus Ordo, our new form, is a valid and can be very beautiful way to pray. Okay, That's the truth. Christ is present in all of them. And yes. therefore, love says... If the needs of a community can be best met with this form celebrated in their midst, so be it. Because that's true communion. Right? What I find interesting, I must confess, is that there are people who are, and I don't like these words, either liberal or conservative. I, I, that terminology is so divisive. But let's, let's use it for shorthand. Right? Who seek uniformity in certain things but I'm going to say um, diversity in others. So there are some who want the bishops to say all of these individuals, all the bishops, all of these individuals, all of these people in this state of life, all of these, you're excluded from the Eucharist. But in worship, we want diversity. We also want to be able to celebrate the Mass in the extraordinary form. Okay. And, and the truth of the matter is, my challenge to people who think this way, and, and on the liberal side, it's the same thing. On the liberal side, they will say, we all should be celebrating the Novus Ordo. So they want uniformity. And then when it comes to social issues, they want some diversity and allow bishops to decide for themselves how to pastorally apply this and all the rest of it. it both of them don't work in my mind <laughs> because they're not living the truth in love. Right. So when it comes to lit liturgy, so now what are we going to do? I've asked Father Peter Lennox, who's the vicar for liturgy and worship, to work out a program. Because as bishop, it's my responsibility to ensure that if the extraordinary form is celebrated, that it's celebrated correctly, and it's celebrated by priests who are competent in Latin. Because you cannot celebrate a mass for which you do not understand the words. That's play acting. And I want to be able to create that program to assist those who have a legitimate pastoral need to offer the celebration of the extraordinary form, and we're never trained in it. 
and we will await what the Holy Father and what he says. But if you were to ask me, do you believe there'll be an outright prohibition? The answer, uh, I would be shocked if that were the case. I do not believe that will happen. Yeah. But part of the supervision of the bishop is to make sure that whatever it's done, it's done correctly and competently. And we're working on that already. And hopefully by the early fall, we'll have that program in place. Yes. So you see about the unity question? All right, we can talk about it more after the break, I think. Yeah. Our time has run out. I, mm-hmm. I let it run long because, well, it's your show, so you can do what you want. <laughs> <laughs> but we should take just a quick short break and then come right back and continue on. Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith, families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and His Church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Um, We are talking about the very important issue of unity, especially in light of some uh, controversy that seems to be buzzing in the air these days, Mm but um, Bishop Caggiano is clearing things up uh, from his perspective, and that is excellent. We were talking about excellency. I cut you off when you were talking about the uh, the mass, and we can continue that, or I have other yeah, questions. Yeah, no. Too. So, so from my perspective, living the truth in love allows liturgical celebrations that are true, valid, authorized, make present the Lord fully, completely, but in a in a communion that allows different communities to pray in different ways because our unity is not uniformity. That's the bottom line. Yes. So, I and, I, and how things will evolve, only the Holy Spirit. Again, I started at the beginning. It's humility that allows one to live the truth in love. Stop thinking that you have all the answers. Stop acting as if you're the leader of a political group. Stop forgive me for putting that, stop issuing statements after statement after statement. I think it's time for reflection, assembly, and speaking with one voice before it is too late. So we have Germany, for example, yeah. synod. Yes. Okay? And people are looking at that and saying, what in God's goodness is going on there? And again, I... I, I would be a liar if I said to you I did a lot of study on the question. Okay. I have not. Because we have our own issues to deal with. But when, when Pope Francis speaks of a synodal church, okay, he is not speaking of a democratic assembly which I have heard some voices characterize Germany. That is absolutely mistaken. That cannot be. Now, is everyone involved in the discernment of the meaning of the truth and its practical application in the world? Yes, including the faithful. You know, people may not realize this. In the fourth century, The priest Arius, because he was a philosopher true to his own logic, 
he claimed that Christ was the highest of all creation, but not fully God. He was the demigod. He was the agent of salvation from the Father. And you know, some historians estimate 80% of the episcopacy was Arian. It was the census fidelium. It was the sense of the people of God that resisted. Okay? And it resisted from the liturgy they prayed, from the celebration of Mass. You know, the fathers would say, we've talked about this. If he's not fully God, I'm not fully saved. If I'm not fully saved, don't bother me. Mm -hmm. I have enough problems to deal with in my life. So, so in a sense, so everybody's, so a synod, like we had our diocesan system, we listened to each other, right? But you listen within the larger context of what? Which is the truth. The truth which is the unfolding of the revelation of the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, glorification of Christ. Uh, as it is understood more deeply, not that the truth changes, but our understanding of the truth grows over time. So it's in that context, and then in communion with the whole church, not just the country, it's the whole church. Now, why I think um, for us, part of my critique of the USCCB is that again, whether people realize it or not, anything the USCCB decides is not binding on any bishop. Only if it is sent to Rome for recognitio is it binding. So, for example, this document on Eucharistic coherence, whenever it's finished, however it's finished, unless it's given recognitio by the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, it is not binding on any bishop because the USCCB structure is not a teaching structure in that sense, a binding teaching structure. And, and quite frankly, a synod would be because no synod is possible without the presence of the Holy Father in person or with his delegate. So you have the fullness of the church dialoguing with you. So I think the German synodal process is going to be in for a rude awakening if it goes in the wrong direction. But for us, like for the issues I am talking about, I would very much advocate a national synod on certain issues so that with the Holy Father's blessing in consonant with the truth, the fullness of the truth, and with an understanding of the bishops on how to pastorally apply it in our complicated and changing world, that should be binding on all bishops. That eliminates the division, the discord, the multiple voices, and how social media is manipulating it. Yeah. That's fracturing the unity of the church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you brought up uh, the Arian heresy in the 300s, and I often think of that when I start to get um, discouraged about the, the division in the church today because it doesn't get worse than the Arian heresy. I mean, that was bad. Oh, no. And, and mm -hmm. you know, Matthew 16, mm -hmm. Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And there Absolutely. you go. If, it, if right. we made it through that, we can make it right. through this. And I'm going to raise one other issue, too, since this is our uh, podcast uh, to raise the temperature a bit. Um, again, I'm not passing any judgment on any bishop because God knows people could pass judgment on me. But if the supreme law is salus animarum suprema lex, the salvation of souls, every Catholic in your jurisdiction is your responsibility. 
as a bishop. And therefore, there is an obligation for a bishop to do whatever is humanly possible to help each individual Catholic in collaboration with his pastors and parish leaders to learn the truth in love for their own salvation. Right? So, for prominent Catholics, whether they are politicians who are, like for example, now advocating issues contrary to the Catholic faith, clearly contrary to the Catholic faith, or philanthropists that are funding issues totally contrary to the Catholic faith, or cultural icons who influence our young people by the hundreds of millions who claim to be Catholic and are totally uh, uh, living a lifestyle contrary to the Catholic faith. The very first obligation of the bishop is to meet with that person personally. To sit him down and say, for your own salvation, this is, what, this is the consequence of what you are doing. Yes. And you coming to Holy Communion is only compounding, is only digging your hole deeper, for it is leveling the condemnation on your own head if you do this. So my question is, who is sitting down with all of these individuals? And like everything else in the law, you don't just sit down once and say, I'm done. Nuh-uh. You need to give a person not only the reproach or the reprimand, but you need to give them time for conversion. You need to go back and say, you've thought about it. Let's talk about it some more. Okay? And if a person, if a, if a politician or a cultural icon or philanthropist or, so, or an athlete, whatever, rebuffs, you try again, rebuffs, try again, and then there is public correction. Because the point is the conversion. The point is to, to have the person stop doing what they're doing that's preventing them from coming to Holy Communion. It's not just the act, which is extraordinarily important, but it's the salvation of that person's soul. Yeah. Right? And there are many people, and forgive me for being blunt, but there are many people who say, well, that's their problem. That's true. It is their problem. And for a layman's point of view, a layperson, whoever that person may be, has the luxury to go to bed at night and not have to be worried about the salvation of that soul. But that is not true of a bishop. Who, when I stand before God, I have to answer for my own salvation and what I have done to, to help those under my care to live the truth in love for their own salvation. Yeah. And sometimes, most of the time, you hear nothing of that in the media attention that's going on here, nor do I hear it among my brother bishops. And that, in my mind, is an absolutely essential element. Because we want the conversion of the world. <laughs> yeah. Don't we not? Yeah. <laughs> and the method that you're talking about is actually building a relationship first. Because that's right. the way that you can really get through to somebody in anything, in anything. Right, right, right. Exactly. So, so Excellency, so l let me ask you, uh, you know, among um, the brother bishops, um, there is obviously, as we've been talking about, there's um, clear division. And um, a lot of, in a lot of ways, people are following you know, I follow this cardinal. No, 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 I'm following this cardinal. Right. And Paul right. said, no, you can't say that. You can't say, I follow right. Paul, I follow Paulus. We right. all follow Christ. Right, right, right. And 
it's very dangerous. Okay, it raises two questions. First, in modern in the modern world, because of the instantaneous nature of communication, things that in past ages would never have been known are now known, for better or for worse. And those facts, since nothing is truly, fully, completely objective, can be usurped by individuals to create a narrative. And that narrative serves a purpose. The question is, what purpose? So when Paul said, in, in I believe it was in Corinthians, uh, uh, one follows Apollo, one follows Paul, one follows... It's as old as the church. Mm -hmm. Now, mind you, sometimes the person at hand, the leader, actually um, advocates that, facilitates that. Sometimes it happens despite the leader. That is, it happens around him. And he has no role in it. Because there's a part of this that we cannot control. The narrative... Right? Even this podcast will be spun in so many different ways, in ways that you and I could not control. Right? So I can only speak to that portion of this where a person, a leader, a, a bishop, a pastor, intentionally and consciously either doesn't correct the excess or fosters what we will call a personality cult. That's extraordinarily dangerous. Because you don't believe something because Caggiano said it. Good, no. God, goodness, no. You're not going to do that. You're going to follow it because it's the truth. And please, God, I have in my own small way found a way to effectively and completely teach the truth and, and discern how to apply the truth in the concrete lives of people. Okay? So, in effect... This nonsense that's going on in the church between this great divide between John Paul and Benedict on one side and Francis on the other, it is nonsense. Because it's exactly what I just described. The Holy Spirit, and as only the Holy Spirit can see the fullness of reality, the fullness of truth, raised up for us the two essential pieces, living the truth in love. That is... To articulate the truth unabashedly, courageously, but at the same time, accompanying people in the concrete messiness of their lives. And to be simplistic about it, when you put John Paul, Benedict, and Francis together, it's Ephesians 4. <laughs> so to split it is exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's harming the unity of the church. To what purpose? See, I'm getting myself worked up. To what purpose? <laughs> so, to what purpose? So about that, Excellency, then, um, you know, so I grew up, my childhood and most of my life was under JP two, and then Benedict the Sixteenth, and now Francis. I've only known three popes in my life. But um, there is definitely a, um, a cult of personality you know, I mean, JP2, especially, you know, when somebody, I had a conversation with somebody uh, maybe a year ago and he, he started to say something negative about JP2. And I said, wait a second. Now it feels like you're talking about my grandfather. So right. watch out. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and and, mm-hmm. and I, I had to catch myself because is that what's your take on that, Excellency? Because there are definitely you know where I'm going. Yeah. Okay. All right. So it's a dilemma. It's a dilemma. In the end, what I just said before is the dynamic that governs much of the life of the church. Right? There's a portion you can control. There's a portion that's out of your control, particularly in the world of communication. So, part of the reason why people are prone to this, I'm going to call personality cult, or camps, let's say camps, is because there's so much free communication of things that bishops say, preach, write, lecture about, etc. There was a time when you rarely heard from the Pope or from a bishop. Rarely. And when he said something, you took notice because the last time he published something was two years ago. So it's got to be important. Now we have blogs, we have Twitter, we have this, we have that. Almost to the point where almost no one pays attention unless there's controversy. Yes. Capito, where we're going. That's the point. So the very structure feeds the creation of a narrative of controversy, which then feeds the fire of division, which hurts the unity of the church. So my gut reaction was simply say, stop talking. Stop talking (laughs) so much. From an Italian-American from Brooklyn originally. Could you imagine (laughs) saying something like, just stop talking, stop, stop. But unfortunately, even if you stop, people will talk for you. (laughs) Yeah. So that's the dilemma. So I honestly do not know the answer to the question. But I think there there is social media. I I, I'm really becoming very sanguine about social media. Because while it has a great purpose, much of it is nonsense. Much of what's on social media is people revealing their personal life that, quite frankly, they should keep personal. A lot of it is uh, tribalism and it is fostering conflict for the sake of attention. Yeah. And it's harming, it's harming the unity of church. So let's go back to where we began. Okay. So everyone is clear in my mind. We need to affirm the truth. For when I die, I want to go to heaven. That is my, my, your, our complete collective moral obligation. We also have to discern how to accompany people to live the truth, which is much messier, far more messy. And I think the time has come for the bishops on this question and other questions to come to gather together almost in synod to come to an understanding of how we affirm the truth, which is, which is the only oblig- which is the preeminent obligation, one of the preeminent obligations we have, but also to figure out how to apply it in the modern world. Our structure doesn't do that. So I'm really calling for a reform of the way we operate, which will take years to figure out. So right now, how do we do this? And I think assemblies of bishops to deal with some of these questions is extremely important. 
Yes. Otherwise, generations to come will look at us and say, they failed in fostering the unity of the church, of living the truth in love, we would have failed. And we can't have that happen. For those of us uh, sitting in the pews, um, I, I think we need to remember that even if, um, even if our motivation, if our purpose is righteous, if we're sowing division from where we are, I mean, we're, the, the great divider is Satan. So be careful how you voice things and how you um, bring things up. Well, or, or <clears throat> to put it another way, um, the father of evil will sniff out the places where you are most confident, most self-assured, most accomplished, and enter right through the front door. And he could take a righteous point and make it a cause of anger, bitterness, vengeance. And who will you be serving then? Yeah. Who will you be serving? Woo! What an episode. <laughs> <laughs> Excellency, we're going to take one more break. We'll come back with a, a listener question. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Why do we need Catholic radio? Because not everybody's sitting in front of a computer or watching their television set at home. How about when driving to work? How about while at work at your desk? Catholic radio is there for you. I may be a Catholic priest, but I'm still a student of the faith. And Catholic radio helps supply good material, whether it be a question and answer format show, whether it be a show itself on doctrine or theology. I myself, as a priest, am always learning. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Uh, we've come to the point, Excellency, where I didn't want that conversation to end, but we do uh, have a listener question to answer. And so, yes, of course. Uh, we got an email, and here's what it, uh, the email says. Uh, what does holy water in the churches do, and when can we have holy water back in church? Um, great question. Actually, it's a very timely question. But if you recall... Um, the baptistries in medieval churches were not in the church body. They were separate rooms, usually anterooms. Because again, the church was for the faithful. If you were not baptized, you did not enter. And if you came to Mass as a catechumen, you left before the mysteries of faith. That is, the consecration and reception of Holy Communion. All right? So... The holy water fonts evolved in the life of the church to remind everyone that they enter through the gate of baptism into the mystery of faith, which is the Eucharist. It's a reminder of our being members of the mystical body of Christ. Again, it's all about the unity of the church. And it's also a reminder spiritually, that in baptism all our sins are forgiven, venial and mortal, if we're adults, and therefore we come, we begin the Mass with a moment of contrition, the penitential rite, because in the end we all are in some level unworthy of the Eucharist because we're all sinners. So it's disposition to start Mass correctly, a reminder of our baptism. Now, when could we have holy water? All right, so this is the issue. 
uh, uh, two pastors have raised this question, and we are going to be debating it internally. My, my, again, our fear was that it could be a contagion. Right? You see, I'm very suspicious by personality. And my suspicion is that there are many people who have dropped their guard when it comes to the pandemic, are not vaccinated, and can do harm to people, particularly the elderly. I, I very much worry that even the elderly who are vaccinated, because their immunity is still not what it was when they were 30 or 40, can still be susceptible to breakthrough infections. In the end, I won't affirm again, everything we do is to protect human life. That's the bottom line. So, some d pastors have created holy water dispensers. They've taken the dispensers that gave out the in disinfectant and fill it with holy water. So when you come into church, you put your hand under it, it dispenses holy water, and people can bless themselves. Wow. I know of at least 10 churches in the diocese that have that and have had it for months. So it's a question of how to dispense it. But, in, in, in per, so, they, so it's possible right now, right? But more than likely, by the end of June, we will lift the restriction because there seems to be no evidence that widespread contamination can occur with the sharing of holy water. Oh, okay. And it's an optional too. I mean, a person does not need to do it. So, that's, so I think that's where we're moving towards. And it, more than likely, Next week, there'll be a memo from myself or Deacon Patul um, to all the pastors outlining that. And there'll be other things as well that we may start to change. Because I think at this point, um, we can relax whatever restrictions we have left because we've reached a threshold in Connecticut that is, for vaccination, that is significant, 70%. So. Thank God. Mm -hmm. All right. So if you have a question for Bishop Frank, you can send it in, uh, you can post it on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Uh, you probably already know that Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and so is Veritas Catholic Network. Excellency, would you please give us your blessing? In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, through the power of your divine Son, Send your Holy Spirit into our midst that we may find the wisdom, courage, and grace to live the truth in love in every aspect of our life. Bless us and those whom we love during these challenging times. Keep our eyes always fixed on the Lord Jesus. For we make this our prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. May Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Steve, my Amen. friend, I'll see you next week. Excellency, also, I will see you next week. And thank you so much for your, your courage and your strength and your guidance through all of this. Thank you very much, Excellency. You're welcome.